The first time that I can think of that a, a human had to maneuver a vessel to bring weapons to bear was sailing ships. Sometimes these engagements could take literally weeks. You'd see this, the sails coming over the horizon, and so people would begin to prepare for battle. Once they got into close maneuvering range, now you had to bring guns to bear, typically pointed out the front and sides and rear of the ship. And the idea was to disable the ship, shooting off masts or rudders or whatever they could, and then, and then board. And when you look at the initial aerial warfare, the idea was you had to bring guns to bear. In World War I, the primary product that airplanes provided in the early stages was aerial reconnaissance. There's never been a more valuable product than information about the adversary and what they're doing. And what airplanes, early airplanes gave people, and you even see it with balloons, right, was the ability to get up high and see things. Let's take the cameras up there, let's go see what the other guys are doing over the next hill or, or over the thing that they don't want us to see. And then, of course, you know, the adversary kind of ruined that because there was the first dude who brought a gun onto his airplane to keep you from taking pictures. So yeah, that's, that's kind of how things are, are started. On the stone floor of the California Academy of Sciences headquarters, you will find these words. It is not the strongest of the species that survives, nor the most intelligent. It is the one that is most adaptable to change. Throughout civilization, advancements have been made due to the need to survive. So it's no secret that the adaptation successful for life would be successful in the technologies we create. Speed, agility, and hiding in plain sight have all been at the forefront of technological success. Steve Justice, former director of Skunk Works Special Programs and also a regular voice on season one, and Renee Passman, an ADP portfolio director, gave us a brief historical overview of how jet fighters became what they are today, beginning in World War II. What you see are much higher speeds, much longer range, much greater maneuverability. Engines got better, so we were able to make heavier airplanes fly faster. Kind of have this underlaying technologies that were getting better and better, showing up in airplanes that ended up being more and more capable. Not only that, but you also had electronics come on board. Now you had radios that allowed communication and coordination to improve the effectiveness of the group, as opposed to using hand signals like they used in World War I. For the longest time, from World War I to World War II, there were very capable fighters, but they were all propeller-driven. And one of the things that I find fascinating about the history of fighters is we always tend to think of the United States as, as leading the world in technology. But at the end of World War II, or towards the end of World War II, there was actually a period of time where the U.S. lost a technological edge. There was a huge shock, and you can actually see it in writings from the time when the Germans introduced the ME-262, which was the first jet fighter that was actually out in production. As soon as the Germans were able to take that technological leap to an entirely new type of propulsion and get even faster speeds, higher altitudes, more maneuverability, you know, the U.S. had to react by taking very, very quick steps to bring that capability forward. 
If we hadn't, that would have been the end of our ability to project air superiority and air dominance, even in World War II. And that's really where one of the first Skunk Works airplanes made its debut in terms of the XP-80 going to the P-80. A complete new airplane in 141 days is an amazing production record. Special high-speed motion picture timing devices were set up at each end of a measured one-mile course to officially calibrate the airplane's speed. Two runs were required in each direction, and the average speed for the Lockheed P-80 on all four was 623 eight-tenths miles per hour. The P-80 was designed in response to the German ME-262. The German fighter was faster and better armed than the Allied operational jets at the time, such as the British Gloucester Meteor. These jets would later be classified as first-gen jet fighters. They are among the first jet-propelled subsonic aircraft. We see the jets introduced at the end of World War II, but still the U.S. was pretty slow to react. We had our own jets, but we were kind of frozen in a, a straight-wing jet kind of mode, and suddenly we get to Korea. The Russians introduced the swept-wing jet fighter using, actually, German technology from World War II. The Russians introduced the MiG-15. It had swept wings, making it a second-generation jet fighter. Which meant that we now had a reaction we had to do. We had to transition from the straight-wing fighters to swept-wing fighters. And not only that, we now needed to start increasing the sophistication of our aircraft because, generally, we didn't have the numbers that the threat had. Between the 1940s and the 1990s, there was so much innovation that some refer to the time period as the golden age of jet technology. Generation markers were retroactively assigned to aircraft in the 90s as a way to characterize the advancement in technology from older to newer aircraft. The third generation of aircraft demonstrated supersonic speeds and carried beyond visual range missiles on board. Now, you're, you're fighting at beyond visual ranges. Your maneuverability means less than it did in the past. You're not bringing guns to bear in the traditional sense. And so you see the first steps of this as we move into Vietnam. The fighters that led to Vietnam were actually these interceptors where maneuverability was kind of pushed to the side. You started depending upon sensors and long-range weapons. And suddenly that war forced you back into, again, needing aerial reconnaissance, being able to take pictures like they did in World War I and World War II, as well as uh, attacking ground targets. So now you start seeing the, the needs for multi-role fighters. The need for multi-role fighters would set the stage for the fourth generation. These supersonic fighters were highly maneuverable, the F-16 had look-down, lock-down capability, which means it can detect, track, and guide a weapon to an air target seen by radar. Yeah, a lot of people see the F-16 as a multi-role fighter, but initially it was a lightweight, air-to-air, -air, just knife fighter. It wasn't originally intended to carry beyond visual range missiles on board. It had a very simple range-finding radar and the, the YF-16, but those needs for having the multi-role aspects drove it into the airplane that we see today. 
when people think about fighters and you think about how fighters are portrayed in movies, it's usually the air-to-air role that you see, right? The cool dog fighting like in Top Gun where they're just busy shooting each other and doing that knife fight. But in order to do that, there's many things that have to happen to have the freedom to maneuver. You know, there's ground threats. There are people shooting at you. There's people sending electrons your way to try and find you so they can shoot you. And in the past, there might have been specific airplanes for each mission. And so when you're talking multi-role, it's really one airplane that does all of those things. It's a jack-of-all-trades. And you set the stage perfectly for why 5th Gen exists, because the threats such as radar and surface-to-air missiles that we started seeing in Vietnam now represented a a very serious threat to our fighters. How do you deal with these surface-to-air threats and even the more sophisticated adversaries that were getting long-range missiles, long-range radars inside their aircraft? Well, the primary driver or primary sensor for all of those systems was radar. And so the first thing you want to do is reduce radar cross-section, make yourself much, much harder to find. They introduce stealth, combined with the maneuverability, even multi-mission capability, communication sensors, in an unprecedented fashion. Moving from propellers to, to jets represents a key, key, key change in fighter technology. Moving from non-stealthy airplanes to stealthy airplanes is a similar leap in capability. And sure, you can take an airplane that wasn't designed with stealth as a starting point and apply technology to it, just like you can take a World War II era airplane and put a jet engine in it and get more capability, but you're never going to get the full up capability until you balance the design around this new attribute, which is really when you see the big difference going from kind of fourth gen to, for example, the 117, which was a fighter, although not necessarily super multi-role, but really designed around one attribute. And then you go to the true fifth generation fighters in terms of the F-22 and the F-35, and now you see stealth balanced into design and being able to take advantage of it in ways that it would not have been able to if it was just pasted on. To give you a better idea of what Renee means by designed in from the beginning, here's James Durrell, who leads the tactical systems portfolio at Skunk Works. So stealth designed in from the beginning, number one starts with the ability to have a very clean outer mold line and have internal weapons carriage. If you carried ordnance and weapons, it was carried externally. That reflection of those weapons carried externally raised the signature of your aircraft. So the ability to all of a sudden put the weapons, whether it was air-to-air, air-to-ground, internally, you were able to have a clean outer mold line, therefore reducing the signature and your chance of being detected. Atherton Cardi, director of our Technology Roadmaps portfolio, takes this description of stealth a step further. The F-117 was not a performance aircraft. It was an amazing achievement. It was the first of its kind. It defined stealth for a nation, but it required all kinds of compromises to get there. But the reason I point to the F-117 is that it's, it's pretty easy when you look at that aircraft 
to figure out what's going on, right? You notice that when you look at the lines of the aircraft, they tend to line up in a certain way, and you tend to see not very many curves. And then the interesting thing is you start thinking about, well, if that's a low-signature aircraft and the F-22 is a low-signature aircraft, it's a little bit curvier. And then you look at the F-35, and it's still curvier. The interesting thing to me about fourth-gen and fifth-gen aircraft is when you look at a an early fifth-gen aircraft that has those strong lines, it's pretty easy to see the difference. But it's interesting, as we get better and better and better at developing fifth-gen aircraft, they start getting back farther and farther and farther to the curvier shapes. So what you're seeing is us getting better and better in one discipline, the discipline of signature management, which allows us to take more liberties in the way that we design and develop in other disciplines like flight sciences. When I received my wings back in 1978, there were a couple of brand new airplanes that were being flown in the Navy. One of them was the S3 Viking. I ended up choosing the S3, and I spent eight years on active duty flying the S3. When I selected the airplane, I I didn't know it was manufactured by Lockheed, but obviously I learned that after I started to fly the airplane. So then when I decided to leave active duty after eight years, I ended up going to work for, for Lockheed. This is Rob Weiss, former head of Skunk Works. When I first got hired, believe it or not, in 1985, one of the first things I was asked to do was work on a proposal for ATF, the Advanced Tactical Fighter. And what we were doing is relating some of the integrated avionics in in Lockheed's experience on the S-3. The Advanced Tactical Fighter was a demonstrator program undertaken by the U.S. Air Force. The goal was to create an advanced air superiority fighter, meaning an aircraft that dominates air-to-air battle. Shortly after I moved here to Fort Worth, I was asked to go back to Marietta and work on the F-22 program. That was at a critical juncture in the program. It was in the later stages of development, early stages of production. That was really the the beginning of a more substantial way to work with fifth-generation aircraft. To fully appreciate the fifth-gen concept, you have to go back quite a ways, back to the probably mid-'80s time frame, believe it or not. At that time, the fourth-generation airplanes were were state-of-the-art. So airplanes like the F-16 that, of course, Lockheed builds and the F-15. And in parallel with the operating of those airplanes, you will recall that the Skunk Works developed the F-117. So this was the first stealth fighter. And really where you saw that capability manifest itself was in Desert Storm in 1991. And in that case, the F-117, representing about probably less than 20% of the total force that flew in Desert Storm, they took out 80% of the most difficult targets in Iraq. So that was really the debut where the effectiveness of stealth was proven. Leaders in the government and the Air Force knew that stealth was going to be a game changer. And the advent of, of supercomputers that allowed traditionally fighter-shaped airplanes to be stealthy was one of the big breakthroughs that enabled 
ATF. How do we develop a fighter that can operate in the more traditional, you know, supersonic, high G-loading and agility and maneuverability of the airplanes and at the same time be stealthy? So that was the breakthrough with the F-22. Lockheed and Northrop were selected to develop the YF-22 and the YF-23. In 1991, Lockheed's YF-22 was selected and became what we now know as the F-22 Raptor, a fifth-gen fighter. And the F-35 was the same type of breakthrough, but it was a multi-role airplane. The X-35 was the proof-of-concept aircraft built by Skunk Works for the Joint Strike Fighter competition. Lockheed Martin was awarded the contract, and the F-35 was developed from the X-35 design. Both of those airplanes, being the only fifth-generation airplanes in the world today that are operational, we at Lockheed recognize we have something very, very special here. My boss was Ralph Heath. Ralph and I and a number of other people worked very closely together during our time in Marietta. And then after those two years, Ralph became the president of the company and he made me the vice president of business development. And that's when I really got involved with the F-35 as well. So what Ralph did is he told me as his leader of business development to come up with the way to communicate what these tremendous airplanes bring to the warfighter. We put a small team together, just half a dozen of us, that were working on this. Week after week, Ralph would review where we were on telling this story. And week after week, we'd come in, spend about an hour with him, and he'd say, nope, <laughs> that's not it. You know, it, ha it was grounded in a lot of engineering data, a lot of operational analysis data. It was all accurate information, but it was hard to understand because this is complicated stuff. And we kept getting thrown, you know, back to the shower to uh, try again. One day, one of the individuals on our team found this relatively obscure document where the Air Force had defined first, second, third, and fourth generation airplanes. We all looked at it and we, we kind of light bulb went off and we said, ah, and the F-22 and the F-35 are the fifth generation airplane. We came up, you know, with the clear criteria that differentiates fifth and fourth gen, which is that combination of aerodynamic performance, stealth, and advanced mission systems and software. And we said, that's the definition of a fifth generation airplane. And so it wasn't just some sort of marketing thing. It was backed by, you know, substantiation of its overall mission performance. Some people liked the whole idea of branding at 5th Gen. Some said, well, that won't work because everybody's going to talk about how well, we're going to be 6th Gen and so forth. And we were kind of like, that's okay. That's a long ways away. We can worry about what 6th Gen some other time. <laughs> and sure enough, you know, after we started talking about it for a while, it caught on. All of a sudden, we heard about a fifth-generation office in 
Air Combat Command at Langley Air Force Base. You know, we had obviously been talking to the Air Combat Command, but never suggested that they establish a fifth gen office, but they did. From there, it just kind of expanded, and we, we kept communicating fifth gen. Now the Air Force was communicating fifth gen, and on and on it went. What I always found kind of interesting is some of our competitors that didn't have fifth gen airplanes, what they were trying to rebrand their fourth gen airplanes, and they'd say, well, we're a 4.5 generation, or we're a 4.62 kind of airplane. And we, we always were able to say, you can do all you want with these fourth generation airplanes, but they are never going to be a fifth generation airplane. We give a demonstration to staff for one time. We put an F-15, an F-16, in an F-22 in a line of breast formation and had them fly towards me. I was flying an F-15 with a radar and pretty soon we could see the F-15 and shortly after we could see the F-16. And as we approached the flight of three, the staffer was in my backseat. He goes, where's the F-22? And I put my finger up and said, he's right there. He flew past us. <laughs> this is Doc Nelson, F-22 and F-35 test pilot. In the generations, we've had an air-to-surface airplane and then an air superiority airplane. The air-to-air uh, -air airplane is the enabler. They sit over top and make sure that we have air superiority in this area. And then the air-to-surface airplane is a truck that operates under that umbrella. The F-117 came along and it was stealthy and it opened up a whole new section of tactics and ability. So the F-15, F-16, and F-117 combination was excellent in that generation. In this generation, we had the F-22 as the air supremacy airplane. It enables all the operations that are going to go on below that umbrella. And the F-35 is the air-to-surface airplane. But in this case, both of those airplanes are stealthy like the F-117. I'll use an analogy here, a football team, let's just say. And anyone that, that, that knows football knows that the quarterback and the running back get a lot of the attention. Wide receivers get a lot of the attention, and they tend to score the touchdowns. But they don't score any touchdowns if the rest of the members of their team don't do what they're supposed to be doing. A running back never gets that long run if there wasn't somebody blocking for him. And a quarterback never even gets to throw a pass if he gets sacked every time because his line doesn't protect him. So it's a team sport. That's the takeaway. We believe that 5th Gen redefines what aircraft will be and 6th Gen will redefine it again. That isn't to say that you can have a world with just 5th Gen aircraft. And so the whole key when we put these tools in our warfighters' hands is for them to optimize and define what are these aircraft good at, what are they the best at, what's the right mix of fighting force in order to conduct the mission most effectively. The funnest part of my job is I'm the F-35 airshow pilot for Lockheed Martin. And this is Billy Flynn, F-35 test pilot of all three variants, A, B, and C. Our job as test pilots is broad. Clearly, we're out there to uh, test airplanes, make sure that it's effective, that it's safe to fly, and that it's going to work as we promised it would. And then the other part of our job that's interesting is we're the translators between the users the fighter pilots, 
and the engineers and scientists here at Lockheed, and they don't actually speak the same languages, or they might not necessarily speak the same English. What a fighter pilot wants has to be translated into engineering terms, and we're the people that do that. So I started flying a long time ago. I first flew the F-18 35 years ago when it was a brand new airplane. The F-18 Hornet was a fourth gen, quintessential fourth gen airplane. And I have uh, lots of time in the F-16 also. A fourth gen airplane is what we all love seeing at air shows. They're super fast. They do amazing, aggressive maneuvers in front of the crowds. They were really maneuverable to the limits of the human capability. And those airplanes did fabulously well for 30 to 40 years. And the fifth-gen airplanes have completely changed everything we know about what a fighter airplane does. So I'm going to preface this saying I'm officially jealous of Billy's position, and I am by no means an operator. This is Derek Hollian. He's a manager on the operations analysis team. But I have had the privilege of partaking in observing a lot of exercises that we've done, some with our allies and others just domestically with the United States. And if you talk to any pilot that is flying a fourth-generation aircraft, whether that's an F-15, F-16, against a fifth-generation aircraft, whether it's an F-22 or F-35, they are just frustrated. Even though the F-22 is probably viewed as one of the most maneuverable fighter aircraft in production or ever was in production, it's honestly taking away some of the fun from the pilot because what they're doing is they're sitting up there, they see the world, they see everything in front of them, they have perfect situational awareness, and they're able to employ a very highly effective shot every time they need to because they can get close enough to whatever they're trying to engage without that threat, without that system, ever even knowing they're there. And if you're flying that fourth generation aircraft in these exercises, either your missile warning system goes off right before you die, or it doesn't even go off and you just see a big red X on your screen. So it, part of our job is actually trying to take the fun away from some of these pilots or operators, as bad as that may sound, but I say that for the right reasons, is we're trying to make the most capable aircraft where the pilot is basically the tactician at this point. They see the world and they get to choose how they want to execute this operation. But it's hard for us to explain what stealth really means. And when we talk about situational awareness in a fifth generation aircraft, how we see everything, it's hard to explain that to any audience anywhere. You can't be almost stealthy. You are either at the level of low observability of an F-22 or an F-35, or you're visible to us all the time. And then we talk about sensor fusion. That's another of the traits of fifth generation. And we try to explain it in terms of situational awareness. We try to say, look, we see everything that exists 360 degrees around our jet for hundreds of miles or kilometers, depending on who the audience is. We see everything on the ground, everything in the water, everything in the air. But even that's hard to understand. Sensor fusion is difficult to visualize, but Renee has a helpful analogy you might relate to. So imagine you're planning a trip. You're sitting in front of your computer. You've got one window open looking at airplane, 
reservations, and now they're looking at a rental car. Then you need to find a hotel. You need to find activities to do. You need to find what the weather is going to be, all that type of stuff. And you've got all this information from all these different sources, and you're trying to click through, you know, 17 tabs open at the same time trying to plan your trip. If you imagine that each tab is an information source on the airplane, that's really what a lot of the fourth-generation fighters, pilots, had to deal with. They would get a lot of information because you can put sensors and everything else on the platform, but it was all separated. Now instead, imagine you're planning a trip and, you know, if you've used any of the, like, Travelocity sites or whatever, you can, you know, do combined air, you know, car and hotel, and they'll probably tell you what the weather is, and they'll maybe probably have some suggestions about, you know, here's some activities you might want to do in this location. You still are still making the decisions and what do you want to do, but you're not having to, you know, use your brain power to integrate all this information from all these different screens. That's really what the experience an F-35 pilot has. There's an amazing amount of sensing capability on the platforms. And rather than having the pilot use you know, their brain power to try and connect all those things, the platform does it. So it might say, hey, I picked up this target using this sensor and that sensor and that sensor. And it actually combines that and says, oh, all those three are the same thing and it's right here. And so it's really helping the pilot make sense of a lot of the information that's out there. They get to use their brain power to decide, okay, what are we going to do about this? Then taking that information and how can I share it? How can I share that securely? How can I share that without being jammed or disrupted? So our advanced tactical data links that we've been working on, Mattel specifically with F-35, that allows us to share that information across F-35s that are flying in the air. So basically, we're now a wolf pack that we all share the common picture. We all can see the exact same thing. It's funny, when we have simulator experiments here, we have all these different stations and cockpits where pilots will come in, they use that for training and also to look at different scenarios and how we would execute them. And if you look at how that's done in fourth generation cockpits, it's relatively noisy. There's a lot of discussion. There's a lot of tactic sharing. There's a lot of, hey, buddy, do you see this threat out there? Or is it just showing up on my scope? It's virtually silent when you're seeing that with F-35 cockpits. Everyone has the same picture. Some of the capabilities that we have now in the F-35 were actually never even thought of when the program started. You know, Billy was talking about seeing around the aircraft 360 degrees, and we always had this DAS system, distributed aperture system. But as processing technology actually got better, we figured out that, you know what? Not only can we use that information from these cameras that are staring all around the aircraft to provide information to the airframe, but we can actually stitch that together live and then send it to the pilot's helmet-mounted display, their HMD. Because now processing is so great, they can take that information in, stitch it together, and then when the pilot moves his head, he can literally look through the aircraft. He can see the world around him through those cameras. Everyone that knows anything about F-35 knows that we earned a lot of bad press. We had a lot of lessons learned through all the years of testing. More than 11 years from first flight to the end of the formal part of testing, we would never have got our helmet, this amazing, sophisticated, Tony Stark, Iron Man, Avengers, super cool helmet that I wear. We would never have got there without those struggles. 
Many elements of the F-35 came from generations of development. The sensing capabilities began in the F-117. For the first time, we put the antennas inside the leading edges of the airplane. That was remarkably hard, painful for us to go through the development process. We took what we learned from there into the F-22. And we learned uh, even more about the manufacturing. And then we took what we learned from F-22 into F-35. That's a lot of hard work along the way and lessons learned to step through the processes for us to get it right by the time we get to F-35. That applies to so much of our airplane. Incremental steps to get us to a capability now. One thing to make note of too, we don't just look at an aircraft as a, okay, we produced it and it's at its final state. Technology's always changing. We're figuring out new things. The world is figuring out new things. The threat is changing. And we need to make sure that we take these new advanced capabilities and make sure that they have that advantage and keep that advantage for as long as they possibly can. In order to maintain an advantage for as long as possible, the operations analysis team conducts future battle space scenarios. Yes, our operations analysis team, think of them as like the wargaming team within the Skunk Works. And they're, they're a resource that's used across all of aeronautics. But it starts with the threat definition, which we get from the government. There are government models of different geographic parts in the world. There are models of uh, fighters, of their bombers, of their surface-to-air missiles. So you, you start with that threat laydown. And then what the operations analysis team does is overlays a U.S. force or an allied force, blue versus red, in a certain mission. And then we would start to play the technologies in the platforms. Play fifth gen, how successful is that? Put in an improved fifth generation fighter, how much more successful was that? Maybe put different weapons or different sensors on board our fifth gen platforms. How does that improve? And what you'll see as you get to the point, you can make fifth gen be very effective for a certain period of time, and then it has to go to another platform. The operations analysis team plays different time frames. So they'll play a 2020 scenario, then they'll play a 2025, then a 2030. By doing that, we can anticipate when we're going to need a new platform like a six-gen fighter using the government reference models to project how much the threat is improving that, for example, by 2030, maybe we determine that we need a new platform. Well, we need to start working on it X number of years before that so that it can, it can be operational in 2030. Test pilot Doc Nelson has been a part of simulated missions. You know, when fighters go against fighters, each side wants to beat the other. And so they try their best to do it. They invent tactics. And we saw this last time, so we're going to do it this way this time. Often, we invent things in training that may become very effective in combat. There are some attributes about 6th gen aircraft that we, we believe are likely to need to be there. And really it's, it's building off the capabilities of our 5th gen assets and 4th gen assets. So we believe that 6th gen assets are going to have to be more connected, for instance. So they're going to have to be able to take more and more and more information and be able to collect it and be able to fuse it and be able to assimilate it and understand it and provide it as actionable information for a pilot or an operator to be able to, to make sense of. 
Certainly you could infer just seeing the capability levels from a signature standpoint that, that those capabilities might improve. A sixth gen fighter will also make all our fourth gen and fifth gen assets more effective. So as we look at a new platform, number one, prototyping and building X-planes and maturing technology is absolutely critical. Why? Because you don't want to have to have all those miracles occur in the development of the program. So if you build an X-plane, it is very intentional to address one of those miracles that has to occur that would reduce your risk when you get to the production program. So a lot of typical scenarios we'll go through is we'll build an X-plane, maybe, maybe more than one X-plane, we'll mature technologies, then we would pull those together in a Y prototype aircraft to further reduce the risk of the program, and then you would go into our production program. It's very important because those activities take several years. Steve Justice worked on the YF-22 program. Many of these fifth-gen engineers faced the same challenges that sixth-gen engineers will. I, as I sit here, I was flashing back to working on the ATF, you know, in the late 1980s. And we we're talking about an airplane that was going to be operational in like the year 2000, you know, which seemed really far out to me. And I went over to a buddy of mine that was doing the pilot vehicle interface. And this is for what became the YF-22. And I asked him how he did his job, and he said, well, one of the things I have to take into account is the, the, the people that are going to fly this aren't born yet. They're going to grow up in a world of computers and video games that I can't imagine. And so I have to make sure that I don't unintentionally inhibit their ability to use this airplane by how I set up the, the cockpit and how they use it. Because they're going to use the airplane in a very different way than I envision. And I saw that happen. Instead of being used as a fighter, it was actually used as a command center. It was a God's eye view of the battle space, directing the battle because its sensors were so sophisticated. And so as we look at the next generation of aircraft, one of the things that has to happen is we have to stand in that future. Inside Skunkworks is recorded in Palmdale, California, and Fort Worth, Texas. Stay tuned for words of wisdom from Rob Weiss and Doc Nelson. And to hear how the X-35 was developed at Skunkworks, listen to Hat Trick from Season 1. Check out our show notes for details about each generation of jet fighter at LockheedMartin.com slash Inside Skunkworks. Best job I ever had in the company was leading the skunk works and my advice would be and I and I've said this my whole career you always need to start with the customer what is it we're doing that's going to make a difference in our in our customers ability to conduct their mission if what we do every day we start with saying how does this provide capability for our customers then I think we will all be successful and those individuals who do that first and foremost in the company will be the most successful. I think in any job, often your job finds you, right? You find out what you're good at. And people have this altruistic or idealistic idea of what they can do 
what they can contribute. And that brings some people into the world where they become a fighter pilot. And then, you know, test pilots are, it's the same thing. It kind of finds you. I think it could sound kind of glamorous, you know. You see the Top Gun movie and you think, oh, that's really cool that those guys are fighter pilots. But the truth is, you know, not hardly any of us looked like Tom Cruise. <laughs>